without you, this can't exist, and, and so on. Uh, Doyen, who is our minister here, had, uh, I asked her you know, if she had a particular topic she would like me to speak on today. We've done the three poisons, we've done other different things uh, throughout a series of talks that, uh, that I've given here and elsewhere. And she said, you know, why don't you just speak to what really is in your heart, what you feel deeply that that's most important that you would like to express to, to us. And um, the topic that I wanted to talk about is the one thing that intrigued me most about Wan Buddhism, and also the thing that had confused me the most. Um, and over the years that I've been here, what I've pursued, what, what, is, what I've, I've tried to open up to, and I took this more as an opportunity for, for myself to, 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 to really work with this. And what I want to talk about um, is the Irwan Song, the truth of Irwan Song. And as is spoken of in the Irwan Song vow, and I'll read that to you, and we, we've, we've just chanted it. But I want to just, today I want to just focus on the first line. Just the first line. Irwan is the realm of samadhi, beyond all words and speech. The gateway of birth and death that transcends being and non-being. So this brings up Maybe a few questions if we think about it. One, what is the Iwan Song? We know it's a circle, but beyond that, that's not what it is. What is meant by the realm of Samadhi? How do we understand this? What does it mean to be beyond all words and speech? It means more than just we can't find a word for it or a description. And then what is meant by the gateway of birth and death? What is the gateway of birth and death? And what does it mean to transcend being and non-being? If one is either being or one is not being, what does it mean to transcend, to go beyond being and non-being? How is that possible? For many of you, if this might be a mystery. Can you explain it to your friends when they ask you about Irwan Sang, about Wan Buddhism? Can you explain it to yourself? What I would like to do is to explore this with you today. It's a very deep, it's a very complex topic. Uh, I think one could spend easily a lifetime, if not many lifetimes, on this. But what I'd like to do in the short period of time that we have is to simplify it as much as possible. So we can leave, if possible, and this is an experiment, I don't know if it can be done, if we can leave with an understanding that we can have for ourselves and possibly to share with others. Something that'll be not just intellectual, but meaningful in our lives. Now, in doing this, in trying to keep it as simple as possible, uh, in many cases, I'm not going to be accurately describing these very vast topics. 
And I want to apologize in advance to my teachers uh, and to you for where I go wrong in, in advance. Uh, I'll do the best that I can. And what I offer you that's correct, please take that to be the teachings that I have learned from others. And what is incorrect or what I don't represent properly, then that's just strictly my own ignorance and misunderstanding. And what I offer, please utilize what makes sense to you, what feels right, and what doesn't. Simply let it go. So let's look at this as an experiment and try and do this with an open mind and an open heart. Because sometimes what the mind cannot understand, the heart can embrace. So what we're really looking at here is the realization that Sotisan, who is the founder of, of this tradition, realized. What he came to his mind that changed his life, that was so important for him to share with the world, and has the ability to transform our lives. It's all contained in that one line. So let's try and express in words what's inexpressible in words. I'll read it once more. Irwan is the realm of samadhi, beyond all words and speech, the gateway of birth and death that transcends being and non-being. Let me start off by uh, reading something that Kyung San, who's the head Dharma master for one Buddhism, the successor to Sotasan, has said about this truth and why it's so important for us. This is from uh, moon and, The Moon of the Mind Rises in Empty Space by the fifth Dharma master of one Buddhism. He says, Wan Buddhism takes the Irwan Song truth as its central tenet. This means that Wan Buddhism has adopted the Irwan Song truth as the source of its doctrine, and that it is a teaching that all believers regard as the object of their faith and adopt as the standard for their practice. It's a very precious Dharma instruction. And then he goes on to explain this in two phases in two parts. Now one thing you may notice about Wan Buddhism, it's different from other forms of Buddhism in some respects. In some respects it's very similar. But one thing that I find unique is we have no worship or reverence of the Buddha image. It's not part of our tradition. You may wonder why is that? Is there any disrespect here? Do we not care about the Buddha? Certainly not. But if you look and if you, if you can't see on the, the camera, what we have here on our altar, uh, there's no images. This vase is a flower, beautiful flowers. And then there's a symbol, which is a circle, which is the Irwan song. There's no words. There's no calligraphy. There's no personification of anything. And what does this circle represent? We're going to get more into it. Of course, it represents the Irwan song. But remember, it's beyond all words and speech. So there's no word that can describe it. While we respect and cherish Buddha Sakyamuni, who's the original the Buddha that we normally see the pictures of, 
We don't venerate him as a god here or as something special. It was certainly something special, incredibly special. But that Buddha was a man that lived and died. The Dharmakaya Buddha is what we revere here as the highest truth, which is the mind of the Buddha, not the personification. And this mind is no different than your mind. This mind is no different than anything. It permeates all of the universe. So it's represented by a circle. And this circle is not an ordinary circle. It's a circle that encompasses everything. And before we go into the details of it, I would like you just to, again, as to try and experiment. And I want you to think of this circle as your mind. And let's call it a big mind. And pretend you're in a play. And I'm the director. And I'm going to assign you all the part. And the part that you're going to play as an actor is the part of big mind. So we're just going to sit with this. This is just an experiment. So let your eyes close for a minute and think to yourself, what I am, I am big mind. So I'm going to speak to you and you'll play your part as big mind. As big mind, I ask you the question, how big are you? You are big mind. How big are you? And just sit and see what comes up. How much of space can you encompass? Is there anything that could possibly be larger? If so, how can that be? For you are big mind. Sit as big mind right now. If I ask you if you encompass the moon, the solar system, all of the stars in the universe, is there anything that this mind cannot encompass? Not only that, is there any phenomena that this mind cannot encompass? Can encompass all beings? Can it encompass love? Does it encompass hate? Light? Darkness? Is there any phenomena that it doesn't hold? Does it reject anything? Now, you can open your eyes and think that perhaps that's just the slightest taste of what this represents, of your true nature, of your source, of who you really are. What I'd like to do now is, um, is break down this into three parts. The first one is when we speak of what is the realm of samadhi? Not moving mind. Not moving mind. Excellent. I never get an, I never ask a question. I, the first time I ever got an answer. I'm, I'm, I'm stunned. Which now reminds me of a story, so I have to completely go off of, of, of what I was talking about. 
uh, a, a great a monk comes to visit a monastery. And um, there are two other, there's, when he gets there, there's a big argument between the different monks. They, in the monastery, they've gone into two factions. And this monk that comes to visit later becomes the patriarch. And one faction is looking at a flag and saying, what's moving is the flag. And the other faction of the monastery says, no, 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 no. The flag is not moving. The wind is what's moving. And this visiting monk looks at the both factions and he goes, I'm sorry, but you're both wrong. The mind is what's moving. So when we talk about the realm of samadhi, what we're talking about is the realm of emptiness, sunyata, where the mind is not moving into thoughts, into conceptualization, into visualization. And I want to give you a taste of what that is. Emptiness is not a thing. It's a lack of a thing. So what does that mean? If any of this sounds crazy, I'm just not explaining it clear enough. It's like drought is not a thing. It's an absence of rain. So you can't say it's a thing. Emptiness is not a thing. It's the lack of a quality, a quality, which is called inherent existence, which is a quality of self, of being, that we attribute to phenomena and objects. We make things have their own qualities that we think belong to them. And this is a mistake in perception. This is one of the things that we're going to be talking about. And in attributing that quality to the object, we mistake reality because those qualities come from our mind, strictly from our mind. To simplify it, again, because these things can get very obtruse. To simplify it, we think that certain things have a quality of good or bad. I'm going to make this as simple as possible. It gets more complex. But when we think of good or bad, we think it's the quality. So maybe this is a good gong, and someone else may have a bad gong. It doesn't sound right. So we think the gong has a quality of goodness or badness. But no such quality exists in a gong. It's strictly a quality of our mind. Some people may think broccoli tastes good. Others think it tastes bad. The broccoli has no quality of its own. It just is what it is. All of these qualities are projected onto it from the mind. You can look at uh, phenomena. Most people here think that what happened at the World Trade Center was a horrible thing, a tragedy of the worst type. Yet there were people in the world that rejoiced at that. One truth is good, one truth is bad. It's not in the object of the phenomena. It's in the way the mind perceives it. It's the perception. Same thing with all the people that you meet. No one is good or bad. It's how you see it. They're protecting their own happiness and freedom. You're protecting yours. Sometimes there's conflict. But when we make them inherently good or bad, then we can kill them, we can harm them, we can have wars, and all the tragedy and catastrophe of this world starts to unfold and unravel. So this is one way of looking at emptiness. There's no good, there's no bad. There's a pattern that's going to start to develop. If I say this pencil is small, is this true or not? Well, the pencil is neither small or big. It's just a relative perspective. If I bring in a giant pencil, it's small. If I have a little golf pencil that you get, it's big. 
So the pencil has no bigness or small to it. It's empty of these qualities, yet we think it's a big or small pencil. And things the same way it works towards things that are beautiful and ugly. Not a quality of the object, it's strictly a quality of the mind. This is very freeing information because everything works this way. This is what's known as emptiness. We don't usually see things this way. The Heart Sutra talks about this and he says nothing is stained or pure. That's good or bad. Just in the way I referred to it. It says, Nothing, there's no gain or loss. Again, gain or loss is relative. To the world, there is no gain or loss. You dig a hole and take some sand out of the beach at someplace else in the world. You don't win the lottery, somebody else does. The rest of the money goes to the government. The money just flows around. There's no gain or loss. It's all dependent on your position. So there's no good, there's no bad, there's no gain or loss. There's no coming or going. Do you think that there is coming or going? Is it possible to come or go anywhere? Again, it may sound confusing, but take this as an example. You're in an airplane flying to London. Are you coming or going? I say there's no coming or going. And remember, it's an inherent quality of the phenomena. What I'm saying is there, of course, is coming or going, but it doesn't exist in the coming or going. It exists only in the mind. So for the family that the person has left in New York, there's going. For the family that's in London, there's coming. But if you reverse it, it's the opposite. For that plane in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, there is no coming or going. It's just a perspective of where it is. It's both coming and going at the same time. From one side it's coming, the other side it's going. The plane is still moving in the direction it's moving. So all of phenomena, all of the life that we live is a creation of our mind. This is what we mean by that. Now people take this too far and they say nothing exists. This is the next thing that hopefully we'll be able to get to about what existence is. And they think, oh, there's no coming, there's no good, there's no bad, there's no this, there's no that. There's no chair. There's no inherent chair that you're sitting on back there. You make it a chair in your mind. You say it has a function as a chair because I can sit on it. But I can turn that gong over and sit on it. Now it's no longer a gong, it's a chair. You see what I'm saying? It's a matter of how we use it, how we impute, which means to conceptualize a function. It has nothing to do with the objects outside of ourselves. When we talk about the realm of samadhi, we're talking about this emptiness of all phenomena. Now, again, let's try and get a taste. Now, why I keep saying taste is because it's not a thing, it's an experience. So, taste is not a thing, it's an experience of, of eating. Emptiness is an experience of consciousness. So, let's play a game, a little short game. We close our eyes again, you can keep them open if you wish. And now, there's a space probe. And the space probe is going way off into space, hundreds of thousands of light years away, and it finally arrives at a planet. 
And as it reaches the planet, it slows down and it starts to come in for a landing on the planet. And now all of the sensors are working. The cameras are working, the sonar, the radar, sound microphones are working, infrared. All the electromagnetic spectrum is being recorded. One problem. The wire between the sensors and the central processor of the computer got disconnected. So all of this information is coming in, but there's no processing. It's not putting it into any categories of files. Now, I want you to imagine you are that probe. You just have the sensors. And as you land on this planet, what is it that you see? The sensors that were connected to the computer was your mind that conceptualizes things. So you can't say, I see a mountain or a river, because these things don't exist anymore. It's just raw data. So you would see things, but you can't name them. Be with it. Is there any way to possibly differentiate between what's a stone and a rock? What's useful and not useful? Where a hill becomes a mountain? Where a stream becomes a river? Or whatever it is that's there to name it? No, you can't. It's just a field of thusness. Nothing more. Okay, now we come back to the room. And hopefully that's just a little idea, a little taste of that. I'm going to read something again from Kansang. The realm of samadhi refers to a realm where both subject and object become void. Void refers to this emptiness. Void also refers to no boundary. There's no conceptualization. Whenever we create a boundary between floor and wall, it's just a conceptualization. That's a boundary there. But technically, the, metal, the, the wood flows into the wood. There's just much separation between each plank as there is between the wall, but we create in our minds a boundary. So it's void of that. There is no I, no you, no parents, no heaven, no earth. See what I mean? It's a state before a single mind emerges. Kind of like that space probe. It's a space before a single mind emerges. Before we emerge from our parents. There's an old koan, you know, what is your original face before you were born? Did you ever hear that? Someone? No? No? Next week. <laughs> okay. But it's the same thing. What was your original mind before you were born? That's that space probe. There's no conceptualization, yet everything, the thusness, is still there. Before heaven and earth are divided. What does it mean, before heaven and earth are divided? Heaven and earth become divided when that space probe, there's a mind that says this is heaven and this is earth. Before then, it's just one seamless field. There is no division between anything. There's no I, there's no you, there's no me, there's no this, there's no that, there's no chair. None of this creation of good, bad, big, small exists. 
It's seamless. This means that the truth that provides the foundation for the Irwan song is like a state of samadhi, a state of emptiness, an absolute oneness that, is, that we are incapable of imagining with our minds. It's not trickery, it's not a magic word. Why are we incapable of imagining it with our minds? Because our minds are dualistic. Our minds want to name it. They want to call it a name. And as soon as we call it a name, why we have this, why we don't have a name, why we don't have a person, why we don't have a thing, because as soon as we call it a name, we separate heaven and earth. How is this possible? Very important. As soon as I call this a book, everything else on this planet that doesn't look like this becomes not a book. I've separated heaven and earth. As soon as I think I am separate from you, I've separated heaven and earth. This and that. Chair and not a chair. Gong and not a gong. Soon as you name anything, you separate it from everything else that isn't that. Soon as you put something into a category, you separate it from everything else that's not that. This isn't done out there, it's all done in here. Who do you belong to? Who is part of you? Who's your group? You create all this. It's my city, this is my, my city people. My countrymen. My family, you include, you exclude. You separate heaven and earth. You separate yourself from all other beings. It's not the way that it is, but it's the way we, might, we create it in our minds. So we separate heaven and we separate earth. I have about 25 other examples which we're gonna skip. Because <laughs> we'll never get through this. We only did the first part. So let's go to, why is it beyond all words and speech? That's duality. Anything with words we just covered. Why it has to be. As soon as we have a word, it defines it into this and that. It separates heaven and earth completely. So we cannot say it in words and speech. It's formless. This is what's known as the absolute and the relative. The world that we live in, on a day-to-day -day basis, the way that we normally do for most people, is the relative world. Everything exists is big or small, this or that. Everything is a comparison. It's this, it's not that. It's relative. Can you have any thought that's not dualistic? Can you describe any object that's not this or that in two parts? Everything is a comparison. Everything is relative to something else. That's the way it is. Play with it. See if you can find something that's not relative, that's a thought. It's not possible. You can play with it later. Let me read something about that. Much more eloquent than I am. The words Irwan is beyond all words in speech mean that is a realm, it is a realm where words and language have ceased, so that one cannot teach it, one cannot imagine it in one's mind, one cannot conceptualize it, one cannot explain it through words. It is a realm of the ultimate of non-being, 
a realm of perfect bliss, a realm of utmost good, a realm that exists before a single mind. Our parents or heaven and earth comes into being. In the Tao Te Ching, it is a realm, this realm is described in the words, the way can be expressed in words is not the true way. In other words, if we can call something the way, it is neither eternal nor an absolute way. Ultimately, the absolute way is one that cannot be given shape through language. So we understand that now? Because it's not dualistic, it can't be expressed in language. The other part transcends being and non-being. What does it mean to transcend being and non-being? Isn't something either it exists or it doesn't exist? But if everything exists in our minds, not in reality, then maybe nothing exists. But how can you say that? People say the self doesn't exist, but here I am. So what is this? Is it nonsense? Is this some kind of puzzle that we don't have an answer to? Is it impossible to understand? No. It's not that complicated. Buddha never said, for a particular reason, whether things exist or don't exist. He never took a position on it. Whenever anybody asked him that, he never would answer the question. He always says, it's of no consequence, it's of no concern. So let's see if we can understand what he meant by that and why he refused to answer that question. I'll ask you, does everybody here know what Pinocchio looks like? How about Cinderella? And for those of you not familiar with fairy tales, what about a unicorn? Can we all imagine in our minds a unicorn? Now, if these things didn't exist, we couldn't imagine them. We could all talk to each other about them. We all know what they are. We even know how they would act and what they look like and what they wear and what their problems were and what, what happened in their lives that was of interest to us. We all know these things, so these things exist. We can't say they don't exist because we're all talking about them. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. But then if I asked you, do they really exist? Well, you say, well are they, they're not real people, but they, yet they exist. So do they exist or do they not exist? Well, yes they do, but no they don't. See where we're going with this? What I'm saying is, it's not important, I would say to you, whether these things exist or don't exist. There's no bearing on it. It's a silly conversation. It's a waste of time. What is important is to understand how things exist. Because when we don't understand how things exist, we become deluded, and this is the source of all suffering in this world in our lives for all humanity, this is the teaching of Buddha. So let's go back to our Pinocchio and unicorns. So the question is, how do they exist? And it's quite obvious. Well, they exist as storybook characters. That's how they exist, but not as real objects. So we can say, yes, they exist, but they don't really exist. Now everybody understands what I'm saying. But when you get into Tibetan talk about this, it becomes very deep and very complex and your mind starts to bubble. But that's all it is. It's how things exist, not whether they exist or not. This we talk about nihilism and, ex and existing. All right? 
And it's not an important debate, because it has nothing to do with this. It's how things exist that's important. How we create these things in our mind, so we realize, and we'll get to it later, how this has an incredible effect on our life. So where this really becomes important is when we ask the question, do we exist? Buddhists, do we, we say people, the self does not exist. Everything is anatta, non-self. There is no self. People get hung up. There's no self, nothing. I don't exist. Then people say, oh, I, but I exist. But no, you don't. Because it's just an imputation, just like the chair. You're no different than that. You exist. As what? As a father, as a mother, as a CEO, as an unemployed person, as a man, as a woman, as healthy, unhealthy. These are all just personas. They change. You're healthy, the next day you're sick. You're no longer a healthy person. You're a father, you lose a child, you're no longer a father. You can call yourself that, but you're not. You're not fathering anybody. All of this changes. Things that we're so solidified to think that we are. I'm the CEO of a company, and this is my identity. You get fired, and your life falls apart, because that's who you think you are. You think you died. But it's just, it's just an imputation. By seeing these things, you don't have to give up being a CEO or being a father or anything. You can just hold it lightly. You don't have to suffer when this identity is threatened because it's not who you are. You're under starting to understand yourself as something much, much greater. And this makes all of the difference. What we do, it's like waves and water. Are the waves different from the water? Are they the same as the water? Well, there's appearances of things and thus and who we are and what we think we are are like the waves. But the waves are not separate from the water. They're not separate from any of this. And when we talk about what's eternal, this is what's eternal. That ocean is always there. The waves arise when the wind and conditions occur, and when they stop, they go away. And life is like that. You know, when conditions are right, we're born, and we're not. We're no longer born. We're, we're not here. But the ocean, that which we are, which is the source, which is the Irwan song, is eternal. It's always there. It's us, the waves, but it's not us because the waves come and go. It's a matter of what we identify with. What we are is the middle way. That's that dance between duality, which is the world, the world that we live in, and this ultimate reality of samadhi. Both exist. There's not one iota of difference between the two. Now what I'm getting into, and I'm speeding this up, because I've got like, I haven't done a quarter of this. Maybe we'll have to do it again. But it was interesting, and I didn't even get to tell a joke yet. Maybe I'll tell a joke before we go. Let's, let me just. Let me just read some things from someone a lot wiser than I am. You know, I don't even have time to do it. Uh, we'll have to do more of this, that's, I think. But I want to talk about the one thing that this talk is entitled which I haven't gotten to. It's called The Gateway of Birth and Death. 
And this is what my heart wanted to speak about. What is the gateway of birth and death? It's the most incredible, wonderful realization that I think anyone could ever have. It's incredible. When we think of the gateway to birth and death, we think of just life and death, that something is born and something is the physical. But when we were talking before, if you've got some of it, a taste of it, you realize that things are born in our minds. You know, that becomes a chair when I think it's a chair. Uh, something becomes good when I think it's good. When I think it's no longer, when I think a car is broken, it's no longer a car, it's, it's, it dies. So all phenomena arises and, arises and is destroyed in our mind by our thoughts about it. I don't mean that the physical things disappear, but when I turn that over and sit on it, gong dies and chair is born. See what I'm saying? Even with life, and we'll talk about it because people get, oh, no, this birth is life and death. I know when I'm born, that's something is born, and when something dies, the heart stops, it's dead. Don't give me this nonsense. So let's just quickly go back to that for one second. Do you think you know when life, is born, when life starts and when life ends? Does anyone have any idea? Well, if you did, you'd be able to end an ongoing 50, 100-year debate about that in the United States when it comes to abortion rights, right to life, or whatever. Because they've been arguing, does it belong when, when, the, when the egg is fertilized? Is it when uh, the fetus is three months old? Is it when it's able to, to, to form a particular way? At what point does this? Is it at the moment of fertilization? No, it's two weeks after. Nobody knows. It's when we agree to it. It's creation here. When does somebody die? I work in a hospital. They have ethics committees that meet and argue, is this person alive or dead? Well, there's still a little brain function, and this doctor says yes, but the heart could not sustain it. No one knows. Then there are those that say that the soul remains in a body, if you believe in a soul, you know, and that the, even after the body and the mind stops, that there's a sense energy there that still remains for uh, 18 hours or whatever, or 14 or 10, doesn't make a difference. I'm just saying nobody even knows this when life and death, the gateway to life and death, and when I'm saying, forget about that now, when I'm saying when things are born, when objects and phenomena are born, is when our mind conceives it. We sit at the gate, and this is us, this is our consciousness, of the absolute, the undiscriminated, the Iwan Song, this realm of samadhi and the realm of duality that we live in. And this thusness, this immense world, gets created through your mind. You are the gateway to birth and death. Let me just finish by reading something. So, how does this, we've skipped three quarters of this, but this is the most important part. How do we use this in our life? How did Sotasan bring this into our lives? Because this is what this is about. It's about this in daily life. 
not some realm that no one ever gets to. And the trick is, the, the, the joke is, nobody ever gets to the realm. No one is ever enlightened. No one is ever there. Buddha said it in the Diamond Sutra. If you think you're enlightened, you're not. If you think that the Buddha or a Bodhisattva is enlightened, you're not. What he meant is you can't be a person, a thing, or separate. All that is gone when you go through. There is no person that's enlightened. It's enlightenment itself. There is no person or Buddha sitting here that's Irwan Song. It's Irwan Song. There's no name to it. You can't be that. You can experience it. You can embody it. But you yourself can't be. You can't. Nobody can. So, how do we take that to here? This perspective of the Irwan Song, and it's the two truths, both worlds being one, not at all separate. We see enemies as not being different. We become more sensitive and more compassionate to the earth and to future generations. We see all of this as not different from ourselves. We see this self as a heap of formations that are ever-changing. Our sense of self now starts to form around healthier identities. It's no longer a problem, something that needs to be fixed. We just see it as simply something that we need to survive in this world. We recognize it uh, when, as not a problem. When we create a cage to protect, to protect it, we see that it isolates us. So boundaries fall away. We make love, we make art, we make music. When consciousness returns to unity with all beings, it recognizes itself and it relaxes into its home. That's that stress, that's that dukkha that we all feel, consciousness seeking to return to its true home. The feeling of disconnect that we all have dissolves when we drop into this ground of consciousness. The desire to be kind to others, the desire to be kind to ourselves naturally arises. We need to do nothing but act in a way that's totally appropriate to time, place, and circumstance. One is totally free. There's nothing whatsoever to grasp. Nothing to attain. No preference whatsoever. Yet, you can still like coconut gelato ice cream. My favorite. You live in a state of ease or peacefulness that arises from knowing the bigger picture of existence. Rather than being blown about by the passing dharmas of this life, this doesn't mean we fail to take action, nor we are aloof from happiness or sadness. But we don't become trapped by repeating stories of outrage or grandiosity. And the actions we take are thoughtful, constructive, rather than propelled by reactive habit, defensiveness, compulsion, and addiction. Thank you all very much. <laughs>